Blog Talk Radio. Pilot, your tag team partner, your co-host, and I'm re- I'm really looking forward to this. This is 
unbelievable. Very exciting night. And, uh, you know, let's get into because we, we got a, a little bit of time to kind of recap what went on last night. And, and the big news, obviously, coming out of last night was uh, the injury to Sting. Um, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, you know, things like this happen, and there's so many stories, and you don't know what's true, what's not. And right now, um, uh, the weird thing is with this injury, we're not getting anything as far as um, definitive uh, answers as far as what exactly happened to Sting. We know that Sting suffered some sort of injury. Uh, there's reports that uh, this could be uh, a very serious injury. So obviously we wish Sting all the best. Uh, considering Sting's age, uh, if it's a serious injury, obviously this is going to be a career-threatening injury. So all day we're hearing that, you know, uh, this could be career-threatening, it's very serious, uh, but nothing definitive. Uh, Not too long before we went on the air, about an hour before we went on the air, uh, the real Sting, his Facebook page, uh, released a statement that said, as many of you already know, Sting is undergoing treatment for, an in, for injuries he sustained in last night's match with Seth Rollins. Doctors will continue to evaluate his condition, but he is a man of remarkable health and resiliency, especially at his age and with all he's endured throughout his stellar career. Therefore, we are optimistic he will have a speedy recovery and return to full health soon. Sting has kept his body in excellent shape due, to largely, due largely to the guidance he's received from personal trainer, Jeff Cavalieri, and we trust this will prove beneficial to the recovery process. As a side note, we later learned the greatest damage to his body took place before the match was over, but being a true professional, he is and among the hardest workers ever to step foot in the ring. He insisted to see the match through to the end. And again, credit to Sting, he did see the match through to the end. Um, I, You know, it's one of those things, Dave, where I'm not 100% sure if the finish that we saw was the finish that was supposed to happen. Uh, to me, watching it, I thought he was legitimately hurt. I thought something bad was going on. And I, I found myself wondering if, uh, in fact, could last night have been uh, a Sting WWE Championship win? And they had to call an, call an audible because Sting knew that something wasn't right. Um, but, you know, interesting, Dave, as you hear these reports, I'm hoping, you know, you listen to the Facebook page, uh, they're talking recovery, they're talking speedy recovery. So with all the stuff that's saying that it's a serious injury, possibly career-threatening, I'm hoping what they're saying on the Sting Facebook page is actually what's true and we get a speedy recovery for Sting. Yeah, you know, it, it was pretty strange. Watching it last night, um, I mean, I'll, I'll go on record saying it was a pretty good match. You know, Sting kept up with Rollins. Um, and, you know, Rollins is just a superb athlete and uh, really, really brought a lot last night just with both matches back-to-back, um, and we, we'll get into that later. But it's, it's in regards to, um, you know, Sting and his injury, it was pretty strange watching it last night because I was trying to figure out where exactly he got hurt in the powerbomb turnbuckle spot because, you know, it was after that spot was where he just kind of collapsed. Um, and... You also notice, too, like a lot of times when a guy is hurt, like legitimately, or, for instance, you know, a fan runs in the ring, like what happened last night during the six-man tag, the cameras have a tendency to cut to tighter shots of things, and sometimes random shots, something that just doesn't look like it's supposed to be there. So there were really a lot of tight headshots on Seth Rollins. They cut back here and there. 
Um, but the trainer was in the ring. They didn't really want to put too much focus with the hard camera on, you know, staying in the corner with the um, with the trainer and the referee. So I, I kind of had a feeling that it was something that was legitimate. Um, I didn't – at first, I didn't think it really was affecting the outcome of the match. Um, but then after the finish happened so quickly, I thought to myself, well – yeah, it pro- what probably happened, and this is just my opinion, um, I don't think Sting was set to win last night, to be honest with you, um, to, to win the title. And uh, my reason being is that um, they wouldn't have had Sheamus and Kane come out, um, and Kane's purpose was to chokeslam Seth Rollins. They, I don't think they could have called an audible, so many audibles back-to-back-to-back to back to back if Sting was set to win the title. So I think... Um, as we saw the finish when Rollins rolled him up, reversed the Scorpion Deathlock, which was pretty cool, a pretty cool roll. I think the match was probably supposed to last a few more minutes um, and then lead to the finish of Rollins winning the match or escaping the match just barely um, against Sting. So uh, let's just hope that, you know, it's a, it's a speedy recovery. Um, but if it's really significant and at his age, um, you know, 56 years old, that uh, you know he could potentially not come back. It would be pretty sad that his WWE run um, ended on this note. But I truly don't think that's the case. I mean, he 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 looked in great shape, WrestleMania and last night. He looked in phenomenal shape, and he kept up really well with Rollins. I, you know, a lot of people bitched and complained. Well, Rollins got to carry this old guy. Well, Sting held his own. Sting held his own in that match and took some pretty pr- pretty big bumps for a guy at his age. So. You know, hats off to him, and hats off to him for being the, the, the professional wanting to continue to entertain us, the wrestling fans, and continue the match and, 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 and after being seriously hurt. So all the best to him, and let's hope, uh, you know, speedy recovery and he can come back and still uh, live out this run with WWE. Yeah, I kind of wonder if, you know, potentially, like, could he have gotten hurt uh, on that uh, table bump and – you know, didn't realize how badly he was hurt. And then when he took that power bomb, it kind of knocked something out of place or exacerbated the injury. Because that table bump, bump, like you're saying, guy his age, the bumps he took, um, that table bump was no joke. And I, you know, it's funny, and you guys in the northern New Jersey area, you probably, I've had these conversations over the years with uh, independent wrestling promoter uh, Kevin Knight who, uh, you know, brings up a lot of stuff, the psychology and the storytelling. And, you know, it, it, you know, things when you hear these things, it makes you look at things differently. And he's always said that it bothers him that when you, you know, you hate your opponent so much, you want to put them through a table, but then you stop to move the microphones, to move the monitors, to make sure it doesn't get too hurt. And it, it is, it's one of those weird things. That, like, if I hate somebody... I'm not going to give a damn, like, if they wind up hurting themselves on a monitor or something. And uh, last night, they didn't move the monitors. Uh, Sting took a nasty bump uh, through the Spanish announce table. Uh, again, something, I mean, kudos for, for any guy to take that bump, let alone uh, a guy of, of Sting's age. And, uh, you know, I wonder if he could have, like, maybe hit one of the monitors or, or just fell awkwardly. Um, but, you know, Dave, to your point, that bump through the table was a hell of a bump. Oh, it was. I mean, I, I honestly didn't expect, you know, him to take take that kind of a, at his age, but... He did, and um, it added more. Uh, it added more drama to the match. That you know, thing, the veteran in his age, could he come back from something like that against the young upstart? You know, 
dominant WWE champion Seth Rollins. So, I mean, I thought a good story was told overall. Um, And I really didn't have too many doubts as far as as things conditioning and his cardio and how he was going to, um, you know, do for himself in the ring. I mean, he's – honestly, I mean – you said it last night on the show. You weren't never really, you were never really a big Sting fan, and neither was I. I mean, I liked his stuff, but like I wasn't really a big Sting guy. Um, but you can always say that like he never really had a bad match. I mean, he worked with a lot of guys that were duds, but he still made the matches watchable. You know, Sting was Sting was a pretty good hand in the ring, and uh, you know, I, I didn't have any doubts that he was going to have a bad match with Seth Rollins last night. Agreed, and it's interesting, you know, a guy like him, you know, aside from really, um, you know, the the hairline, so to speak, um, you know, the makeup helps a lot. I mean, when you look at him in the ring, you don't think 56-year-old guy at all. Um, now, you know, I haven't seen him in, in a little while without his makeup on. I don't know if that makes him look older, but, you know, I'm sure the makeup helps conceal his age. But, yeah, just, just look like a guy, you know, uh, 10, 15 years junior uh, from being uh, 56 years old. So kudos to him. Overall, I thought the pay-per-view was was a good pay-per-view. I'm not going to say it was a great pay-per-view. Um, I don't think I, I was blown away with, with much of anything. Uh, to be honest with you, there weren't a lot of living room pops, if you will. Um, but I don't, there wasn't much of the, in the pay-per-view that, that I was like, oh, my God, that was terrible. Um, it was... Um, it was a mixed bag for me. Uh, the end, you know, as far as storytelling goes, uh, the end, you know, I, I get it, but there's part of me that, like, you know, when you see, and supposedly fans were yelling this at Sheamus, um, you know, Sheamus left the ring area after Kane went and laid out Seth Rollins and Rollins is just done. Uh, you wonder why, you know, if, if this was real, why a guy like Sheamus would not jump in and attempt to cash in yet again. But it's wrestling, and I get why they did it. Uh, it was an interesting ending to bring Kane back that way, Sheamus with a uh, potential cash-in. Uh, we'll see what happens with that going forward. Um, see what they're going to do with Kane now and that, that character going forward. Uh, but again, Dave, I thought it was good, not great. Uh, some Some real solid matches. Uh, but again, nothing, I, I guess for me, like the wow factor really wasn't there. You're right. I mean, I, I would agree with you. It, it was, it was a good show. I'd give it a B, uh, maybe even a B minus. Um, it's a B pay-per-view. It's not one of their big pay-per-view events that they, that, that, that they really put a strong emphasis on like the Royal Rumble or WrestleMania or even SummerSlam. Um, you could, you would even say that like the money in the bank pay-per-view, um, is, it, it, it's got, more importance than a Night of Champions pay-per-view. So, um, yeah, there wasn't really any big wow factors. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but Chris Jericho being the mystery partner, yeah, it was cool to see. Um, But he was kind of one of the names that was rumored. So there really wasn't – it was a surprise, but it wasn't in a way because there were so many names that were discussed as to who could be the mystery partner. And uh, we'll discuss that a little later on because I just found out some tidbits about Jericho that uh, I think we can elaborate on later on uh, on, the, on the show this evening. Uh, but, yeah, overall, just, a, I mean, not a bad match, good stuff, um, not great stuff. And, um, you know, the Kane situation with Sheamus getting involved, um, you know, I was kind of thinking that when Sheamus came in the ring 
it seemed logical that he was almost trying to get Kane to do his dirty work so he could cash in after Kane was done. But, you know, Kane's character being Kane's character, he kind of turned the tables on Sheamus and just, you know, let him know that, like, I'm, you know, I'm on my own. I'm doing my own thing, and, you know, I'm the big red monster, whatever. And which, by the way, Kane's a great performer, okay? He really is. But I would like to have seen some kind of a reincarnation of him. I mean, he comes back just looking like big red monster. Like, maybe change up your look a bit, come out with, you know, a new set of ring tights or something, like, I just kind of thought that, like, you know, it does really nothing for Kane for him to come back in this manner, you know? Like, if he came back looking different and just added something different to his look or something new, maybe it would have felt – maybe we would have gotten a little bit more of that wow factor. Not much, but maybe we would have gotten just a little bit more. But to me, it looked like, you know, it was like Kane from six months ago. Right. The one thing I – and and also with the Kane character that I I would have liked to have seen – is is more of that if we were going to go with the same character and the same you know tights and the same mask and and go in that direction, I would have liked to have seen more of uh, that journey you know not to be dramatic but that journey back to darkness you know that journey back to hell like you know I mean he was corporate Kane, um, disappeared comes back as this Kane. Um, I would have liked to have seen uh, maybe a little bit more of that internal strife, a little bit more of, uh, you know, even if, the, you know, I know they wanted the surprise factor, but maybe this would have been a, an instance where a couple of vignettes would have, uh, you know, would have helped. You know, those vignettes like way back when, when, um, you know, Taker was coming back and they showed him, you know, shaving his head and then the hair dropping in the sink and then that stuff, you know. Maybe it would have been interesting to see some vignettes of, of you know, a silhouetted cane, uh, you know, burning a suit or some something like that. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm just spitballing here. Um, but there, there wasn't like that journey. Uh, you know, he relinquished his mask to, to the authority. And I, I just would have liked to have seen uh, more of, you know, why he went from being uh, corporate cane back to, to the big red machine. So, you know, there's there's that aspect aspect of it too, and I agree with you, Dave. If he was going to come back, and you wanted to keep it a surprise, uh, then then coming back in a in a different look, a different manner, uh, something that uh, uh, you know would have been a little more shocking. Um, you know, to me, would you're right, would have worked a little better, would have given that that wow factor. But you know, to your point, Dave, I mean, maybe that's just the WWE. You know, it's a it's a B pay per view. They kind of gave us a a B pay-per-view, you know, it didn't knock it out of the park, but, uh, some solid stuff. And, and, and a night also that, uh, we did pretty well with our predictions, uh, better than, than some other days in the, in the past. And, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to hit on as, as this diva, you know, we talked a lot last night about the diva revolution and definitely something, uh, when we get JJ on the air, uh, I want to ask him about Ric Flair and what this, uh, you know, means to him and his family and Charlotte. But, uh, you know, Decent match between uh, Charlotte and uh, Bella. Um, you know, outcome that I think we all saw coming. Uh, you know, we've seen over the years that Ric Flair has a, uh, a bit of a reputation for uh, being emotional. But uh, I don't know, Dave, last night I just found it really cool to see uh, a proud Papa. Uh, Flair was uh, downright glowing uh seeing his daughter with that belt um you could tell that i you know there was genuine emotion that he was feeling and knowing 
the history of the past few years, uh, knowing that Flair had lost a child. Um, I, I just thought it was a really cool moment to, to let Flair be there, to be involved with that. And uh, I, I just thought it was, it was a special moment to watch uh, father and daughter celebrate that win. I thought it was pretty cool, too. I mean, not like too cool just because like we kind of saw a little bit of it on monday with the old you know you know the 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 classic dusty finish um you know last week with the with the title match stephanie getting involved um you know the match wasn't great it was good but it wasn't great and you know the scenario that i brought up last night if if having you know nikki retain it one more time and really kicking off this divas revolution by putting the two of them in a final match inside the hell in the cell Kind of thinking maybe that's the maybe that's the road they should have went, um, extending this this rivalry just a little bit longer. I almost feel like Charlotte, in a way, has gotten a little too much too soon, based off of you know her name being you know associated with her father. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, the girl's very talented, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again: a lot of the girls on the main roster, they look like they pretend to fight. Looks like she wrestles, legitimately. So. Um, I mean, time will tell. We'll see how this this this, uh, this uh, you know uh, run with her in the championship if it's taken seriously as a part of the Divas Revolution. Here's what I found interesting too. After the match, they cut the cameras to the announcers, and Michael Cole like kind of stops in mid sentence and says, "Hold on, wait. I got some news. We got to get to our cameras in the back." And you would have thought it was like something real serious, and then they cut back to Flair and Charlotte again, crying their eyes out over the title win. It was like, did, did, did we not understand it the first time around that they were celebrating in the ring and it was an emotional win? Did you have to keep elaborating on it? Or was that their way of trying, was that their way of saying that this title win for Charlotte is important and we're the, it's the real deal and we're behind, you know, her being the face of the, the, the women's division in WWE. Maybe I'm just nitpicking, but I just thought it was kind of stupid the way that they segued to, that segment backstage with the two of them. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe it was overkill, and they were they were looking for that that special moment. Uh, who knows? I mean, what do you think? That like, where do they go from here? I mean, obviously, I guess we're going to get a rematch, but uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on this program? I mean, does, does this diva revolution really take off now? Um, I mean, if I were them, I'd honestly like stop doing that. Stop doing the stables. Maybe have Charlotte do her own thing. Um, Maybe if you wanted to, you can kind of set some seeds of dissension between her and Paige. Maybe if you turn Paige heel and then she kind of goes after the belt or even Becky Lynch, um, you know, the the two of them could maybe, you know, be challengers for the title. Um, You know, last night during the match, they showed a shot of Team Bad with Sasha Banks and uh, the other two, uh, you know, uh, Naomi and the, the untalented member of the Snuka family. What's her name again? (laughs) <laughs> Anyhow, um, sorry. She, uh, yeah. So I mean, she's got plenty of challengers to choose from. You know, here's the other thing too that that, that kind of struck me. We've talked about this diva revolution for a while on television. You know, that, that that we've seen on television, and one name that really hasn't been brought up that I think would fit into this into this role nicely is Natalia. You know, I know she gets a lot of TV time on Total Divas and and and, and stuff like that, but. I mean, she's a pretty damn good wrestler, too, and I would have thought she would have been a part of it. Um, so, unless they've done this on purpose, maybe kind of bringing her in now or relatively soon to almost kind of challenge Charlotte and maybe kind of turn her bad and she can 
be jealous of Charlotte that Charlotte got this spotlight, but Natalia was the real woman of the Divas Revolution long before the Divas Revolution was even a hashtag. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Like, I just think, like, I mean, she's going to have a whole boatload of people to choose from. So uh, let's just hope that they stick with it, that there's actual wrestling on the show, and they give the girls serious time, you know, moving forward. And and that's really about it is when it comes to the girls. I, I, I just hope it doesn't go back to the 30-second matches, and it's really about the bikini models and the in-ring action bell-to-bell isn't exhibited properly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both, though, too. I mean, to your point with the, the break up the factions, I mean, I think you need both. You know, the, the in-ring action, I mean, you got the talent now that can go in-ring, but if, if the storylines aren't developed and, and you don't have uh, interesting stuff and you don't build interesting characters, um, you know, the in-ring stuff could be stellar, but it's still the Diva Division might be left flat if, if the storylines aren't uh, developed. I wholeheartedly agree with you, man. I mean, you got, like, one of the better uh, female workers in recent memory in, in Natalia, and you know Tyson Kids down. Uh, I I don't know. Like it, it's one of those things. Dave. I mean, do you ever watch like wrestling? And, and you know, there's got to be something else. Because let's face it. I mean, I know we do this show. We know a little bit about wrestling, but I get it. There are people that know a lot more about wrestling than we do. Um, but I, I look at Natalia and I think no brainer, no brainer. Get her involved in some way, shape, or form. You just wonder what exactly is going on, uh, why they chose to just make her a valet, and why she's not part of this revolution. Yeah, I mean, you know, for the longest time, for years, you know, she was one of the girls that the internet wrestling community and wrestling fans overall were, you know, you know, screaming at WWE like, Use her. She's a good wrestler. Put the belt on her. She can carry the women's division. She can have good matches with everybody. She's a heart member, for Christ's sake. You know, she's she was born into wrestling greatness, you know, like capitalize on that. Instead, they've just, you know, they've done what they've done with her. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like the role that she played with Tyson Kidd and, and then eventually with Tyson and Cesaro as a team. I thought it really worked well. Um I thought she was kind of coming into her own and kind of almost reinventing herself in a way with a different look and being the valet to them. But, you know, at the end of the day, use her for what she, you know, what she's best known for is her in-ring work. And she can go. Plain and simple, she can go. So I think it's only a matter of time before they realize, like, all right, we can't just give her so much camera time on Total Divas. Let's now actually put her in the ring. So. I think it'll happen eventually as Charlotte, you know, goes through contenders. Maybe Natalia will come back and she'll just kind of be on her own and doing her own thing in the Divas division. I don't know. We'll see. And it works. I mean, you have storylines there that write themselves. I mean, you got Charlotte uh, coming out of the Flair legacy and, and you got uh, Natalia with, with the Hart legacy. I mean, you can you can build from there, you know, and, and I bet those two would have some, some real good matches. So, uh you know, who knows? Remains to be seen, but it is it, it, it's that time, Dave. It's that time, and uh, you know, usually, uh, you know, at this point, like we're actually going to call JJ Dillon into the show, so you get to you get to see kind of the inner workings. You're going to hear like the, the phone ringing and, and JJ pick up, and and we're going to get set for our interview. So uh, here we go. I'm, I'm a little excited, Dave. I got to admit, I'm a little I'm a little flutter right now. I got. Uh, you know, this is this is radio, not TV. But I got this like perma smile going right now. <laughs> well, 
I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm 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 pretty excited myself. So I, I, all right, I can't, here we go. Without further ado, let's make this phone call. We are calling right now the legendary manager of the Four Horsemen, J.J. Dillon. And the call did not go through. Let's try this again. Oh, great. The call did not go through. One more time. We're going to try one more time. And if this doesn't work, we're going to get our producer on here, and maybe we can snag him to get... Oh, there we go. And the call failed again. Oh, technology. We had the ringing. Let's try this one more time, and then we'll get our producer on. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Three zero two three eight nine eight seven three zero is not available. At the tone, please record your message. All right, I'm not going to record a message. We're going to try calling him one more time. And let's try this again. Hello. Hi, is this JJ Dillon? Yes. Hi, how you doing? This is Ken Reedy of the Ken Reedy Show. Thank you so much for giving us some time tonight. Uh, we're honored to have you on this show. How you doing this evening? Just fine, thank you. Great to have you. Um, myself and Dave, my co-host, we're here. Uh, just want to ask you a few questions before I get into the question. I got to tell you, I got to thank you. Uh, a few years back, I actually met you at one of the Legends shows, and um, I was doing comment. I just started doing commentary for the Savoldi family uh, promotion, and uh, I was just looking for advice anywhere I could get advice on uh, doing the best job I possibly could. And you were nice enough to spend a couple minutes with me and give me some pointers on, uh, you know, being the best commentator I possibly could. And you know, you didn't have to spend that time with me, and I. Just so, you know, if I ever got to talk to you again, I had to thank you for uh, uh, giving me some pointers on, on what to do on the mic when I'm calling a wrestling match. Well, it's great that you remember, and uh, hopefully the information was helpful. Uh, it was. I mean, your biggest thing was basically uh, just know the moves, know the moves, know the moves. Uh, you you kind of struck, you know, you struck a chord with me that, you know, you got to know everything like the back of your hand. So, again, thank you. Um Let's you know. I want to ask you because uh, you know last night was Night of Champions. Uh, Sting involved going after the WWE title. Uh, there's reports now that Sting, uh, you know, may have suffered a significant injury. Um, it could possibly be it for him. Uh, as far as your dealings, your experience, uh, your career, uh, and and thinking about Sting, uh, his place in history, his legacy, uh, his legacy with the WWE. Uh, your thoughts on on the man they call Sting. Well, first of all, I'm I uh you know, my thoughts are with him and you know, we're I guess waiting something definitive in terms of a medical diagnosis, but you know, at, at the age of 56 years old to be taking a couple of those power bombs into a turnbuckle and then I didn't actually see the match but just uh you know, reading the information and then went through a table um these are the kind of high risk things that uh unfortunately I 
hate to see somebody at this stage of of their career, and I'm talking about Sting, get involved in that situation. Now, he was in with Seth Rollins, who uh, right now is probably bell-to-bell the best uh the best in the business so he you know he was in with somebody who was obviously uh very good very qualified but you know that's the kind of direction that the profession has gone in recent years with a lot of high-risk moves and i just uh i knew sting back in the day uh when the horsemen were riding high and before that and and drew a lot of money with him he was uh just a, a very, very uh, charismatic character. The fans loved him and just, you know, drew a lot of money with him. And he was, uh, you know, credit to the business. And I, I think it's it's great that he, you know, got a chance to get on the, uh, the grand stage with the WWF, you know, before his career came to a close. But at the same time, I would hate to see uh, it ended or end, possibly end, as a result of, uh, of, of a serious injury. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, well, you know, you made it, you know, I mean, great compliment to Seth Rollins and possibly the best in the business, bell to bell. Um, like your thoughts on, because a lot of people out there, they love to use the term like he's not being booked strong, you know, stuff like that. Um, but he's doing that cheating, Weasley heel thing, uh, win the title at all costs. Um, your your thoughts on Seth Rollins, not only in ring, but but the character he's been bringing to the table. I don't know. You know, maybe for me, I I look at it everything from a different perspective because uh, from some for somebody that spent uh, you know half a century in and around the business. From all aspects, aspects of being a fan to being a referee in the ring with uh, probably one of the greatest champions of all time in Bruno San Martino and the classic matches that he had and the people that I wrestled. Only you know a lot of people think of me as the leader of the Four Horsemen, which was the, certainly the pinnacle of my career. But uh, unless those have read my autobiography or studied my career. You know, might not realize that while wrestling slash managing uh, over my active career of 20 years, I had over 3,200 matches. Wow. So I was in the ring with um, not a handful of the greats, but um, most of the of, of the greats. So I have a good foundation and a, I think a, a good sense of, looking at talent based on that wealth of experience and assessing them for, you know, what they do in the ring, their sense of timing, their psychology. And so uh, I'm a big fan of Seth Rollins. Just I like his style. And everybody has to be different, and he seems to have settled comfortably into, um, you know, what whatever his current persona is. And I don't know with uh, today's product, you know how much of that he has leeway himself certainly has to be some of it because even if somebody gives you direction on what they want you to go out and do once you're in the ring um you know i mean a lot of it has to be you know your own personality or your own interpretation and uh like i say he's uh very very good 
Another guy in the current, I mean, again, it's great talking to you, and you have experience both in and out of the ring. Uh, as far as managing, um, you know, managing seems like it's, it's kind of a lost art form. Uh, there are people that at this point are, are you know, putting uh, Paul Heyman uh, as possibly the greatest manager of all time. Um, he's definitely done some great work. Uh, your thoughts on Heyman's work? Uh, especially as of late, and and where he may or may not rank as far as the greats of all time. I am very high personally on Paul Heyman. Uh, there are people who would question me, you know, is the role of the manager dead? And my answer always was, no, the role of the manager is not dead. It's just that the playing field has changed, that there really wasn't a position uh, for the role of the of the manager, and then along comes uh, you know this this monster that uh, that that he's the spokesman for, and now there's the need for the manager because and as I look back in time to uh, you know whether it's Abdullah the butcher or the, or the Mongolian stomper that I started with or the Sheik or people like that, the, these were people who created more interest by them never saying anything. So that made the role of the uh, the manager, uh, you know, very, very important. And, um, and now uh, the situation is such that there's a guy who, not that he can't talk, but uh, I think he is such an imposing physical figure just standing there with his uh, facial expressions. And Paul is very gifted. He has learned to change with the times and and a lot like me he's got a wealth of experience he's done it he's done it all uh all aspects of the business so he brings all that with him and even though nowadays they say that there are people who are writers who basically tell them what to say and i don't know how much input he has in what is expected from him when he gets out there but his delivery his timing his uh, being able to uh, interact with the audience, uh, whether it's a look or whatever. Paul Heyman is excellent. And, you know, all time, I always thought that Bobby the Brain Heenan was the greatest of all time. And he set the bar by which all of the rest of us that ever managed uh, were measured by. And Gary Hart is another one. And sadly, Gary has passed on. And Gary never really got a chance to have his talent be um, exposed on the grand stage where people could appreciate what a really, really talented, gifted guy he was. And I'm very high on Jim Cornette. His style is different. And when you think of Bobby Heenan, when you think of Gary Hart, when you think of a Jim Cornette, when you think of a Paul Heyman, uh, each was uniquely different. I mean, they were very diverse and uh, I just have my name mentioned in the same conversation with them. Um, you know, it would, it's a great honor. And, and as well, it's, it should be. I'm curious how you came up with with your you know character, your version of the manager, because you you had a very. Uh, whereas, yeah, a lot of managers have that kind of you know I'm going to talk for the guy who might have some trouble talking. You had you had a very understated style of managing. Yeah, that always my my philosophy was always less is more, and a lot of it maybe had to do because I had that wrestling experience, and I kind of I go back to the 
regional territories, and there were probably 25 of them during the heyday, just in the United States during the uh, heyday of the National Wrestling Alliance. And a lot of them were small territories, and they would have a manager there. And if a manager was there and he didn't have, let's say, a lot of in-ring experience, and wrestling could be cyclical, especially in a, in a small territory. And if business got down and the promoter is looking at cutting expenses, uh, the first thing that they're going to look at in many cases is the manager because you need two wrestlers, you need a referee, and the manager sometimes is a luxury that may or may not be necessary. And if you've got to cut somewhere, most businessmen would look there first. I always felt that the fact that I had so much experience as an active wrestler that I didn't need to go out on any given night and do a lot of things to draw attention to me to kind of always remind the promoter that I was essential to his business in hopes that if things got tough that uh, he you know he wouldn't look at me first. And I always had that which I guess maybe gave me a uh, you know, gave me a confidence uh, so that I could adapt a less is more. And probably Paul Ellering would be another one who uh, was a great wrestler, but Paul managed the Road Warriors like a business manager. And that's always what I I tried to do. And everybody, there was no mold as to what is a successful manager. I mean, Jimmy Hart is you know, very flamboyant, running around with the colorful jackets and the megaphone, and and Jimmy has been very successful too. But you look at his style, you look at my style. You know, we're entirely different, and yet we're both we're both successful. But for me, that's where I was most comfortable was being the one that less is more. Let's talk about that. As as you know, being uh, you know so many parts of the business uh, that, that you were in. I mean, an established wrestler. Um, again, most known for being a manager, but uh, a wrestler nonetheless. Correct me if I'm wrong, but were you in Barry Windham's first match? Yeah, I, well, I have two two people that uh, had their first professional matches with me. One was uh, 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 Ted DiBiase, and I, I read a, a Wikipedia thing the other day where they talk about, uh, according to Wikipedia, which is you know, I guess can can be corrected, but they were claiming that his first professional match was against Danny Hodge when I know for a fact that his first professional match while he was still at West Texas State was uh, against me in, in Abilene, Texas. He, he was a referee. I kind of abused him as a referee, and Terry Funk came down, and uh, the first match was actually a tag match with Terry Funk and Ted DiBiase against myself, and might have been Mike Dubois. I'm not I'm sure. I'd have to look back in my records to see. But then that led into a one-on-one the following week. So his first tag match, his first ever match was a tag match, and his first single match was with me and Abilene uh, the following week. But to answer your question, yes. Uh, and I'm trying to think if it was, I want to say it was in Odessa or somewhere. But uh, Barry Windham was uh, ca- carrying the ring, and uh tall, good-looking kid just, you know, destined because, uh, you know, it's in his DNA and Blackjack Mulligan, his father, and he was a great, you know, Barry's a great athlete. It was just inevitable that at some point that 
Sarr was going to put the tights on him and put him in the ring, and I I had the honor of uh, of having his first match. And did did you get that sense, like being in the ring and really you know working with him, that uh, you know this guy was uh, you know a special kind of talent? You know, it's I, I would like to to look back and say, oh, I knew instantly that he was <laughs> destined to be a star. But you know, at the time, and you know, you're you're at a at a point in your career where you know you're in a good position, guy having his first match, whether you are willing to admit it or not, you know, part of it is uh, no matter how great an athlete they are, there's the nerve factor and whatever of this guy and. And you want to go out there and you want to have a good match because your reputation is on the line too. But at the same time, you don't want to do anything uh, silly and ultra high risk and and getting hurt. So, you know, I can't honestly say that uh, uh, that on based on that first match that I knew Barry Wyndham was destined to be uh, one of the great stars in our business. But certainly. Looking back in hindsight, you know that's how it played out. I mean, in my opinion, uh, he's he's one of the greatest of all time. Just had it all. Had the the size, had the athleticism, the youthful good looks. The girls loved him, and athletically in the ring, he could do anything. So let's move on a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and and I've heard the story before, but I you know love to hear it again. Uh, the the formation of of the Four Horsemen and I, I think this story is so intriguing, and I'd like you to elaborate on it, but it, it was a fairly organic uh, creation, not something that necessarily was uh, creative, uh, scripting it or saying we're going to create a faction here, uh, and arguably the greatest faction of all time, uh, kind of just happened. That's yeah, true. And, you know, a lot of times in the business there were people who thought they were, you know, had a a feel for the pulse of the crowd and a sense of, you know, what what would be popular and what wouldn't be popular. And uh, I know from being involved on the creative side of the business right from the very beginning, because I was, when I broke in the business, I was 20 years old, full-time, almost 29. So I knew Father Time was not on my side, and if I was going to have any longevity, uh, I, you know, I needed to look to other aspects of the business. So right from the beginning, I was involved with wanting to learn about match, uh, matchmaking, uh, television production, what have you. So uh, a lot of things along the way that uh, if you're interested in that side of the business, you think, boy, this is, this is just red hot. It, it, it can't miss. And it falls flat in his face, and and you can't put your finger on exactly why. Uh, the only thing I could say is that the ultimate judge and jury is always the wrestling fan. It's something that they see, that they can relate to, that they, you know, that they either like or they don't like. And it's, um, you know, it's about you. You could have great storylines, great things that happen in the ring, but in order for these great things to have impact, the the fan first has to relate to you. They have to feel for you. They either have to like you or they dislike you or they've got to have some kind of emotional connection to you. And then once that's established, you know, then 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 you could do things that um, you know are are, are going to get a reaction out of them, either good or bad. 
And uh, with the Four Horsemen, uh, at the time, you know, we were doing TBS, taping it on Saturday mornings. We'd wrestle somewhere Friday night, get on a plane, fly to Atlanta, no sleep, hanging around with Ric Flair, and probably over and vibe, and <laughs> get in a taxi cab to go to the studio and because it was better and simpler than getting a limo and, and stop by uh, a drive through to get some food in you and try to get your senses about you. And under those conditions, I, as I look back, some of the, the greatest things that happened were done at a time where you could argue that we weren't 100%, but we had two hours of programming that was live to tape. And by live to tape, I mean once they started, they didn't say, oh, you know, stop, we need to do cut this out or do this over. I mean, it ran because we had to get back to the airport, get on a plane to go somewhere that night. And on that particular week, Flair was the uh, NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Ole and Arn were the World Tag Champions. And Tully was the national champion, and the only one that I managed at that point was Tully. And somebody said, oh, well, you know, because it's a two-hour thing and some things run long, some things run short. And it was like, hey, you guys got all the belts. Why don't you just all go out there and kind of talk about, you know, where you're going to be this coming week and what have you. And that's how we all ended out there at the same time. Um, All the bragging rights, all the gold belts and uh, as the mic got passed around, Arn was the one that uh, kind of looked at the camera and said, "Hey, as you look at your screen, you know here you here are all the champions. We got all the bragging rights, all the belts, and never have so few wreaked so much havoc on all the rest. You'd have to look back in the history books to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and held up four fingers, and that that's that's what." triggered it and i don't know for what reason the fans are the ones that picked up on that and anytime any one of us went out or as we went to live events the fans were yelling four horsemen and holding up four fingers and it became a you know we would give the four fingers back to them and it just grew and grew and grew and um there's no way that we possibly ever could have imagined uh, how big it would become and how long it would last, but uh, it was certainly the pinnacle of of my career. And then, of course, uh, I ended up uh, being the leader of the uh, of the entire group. So it was a uh, and again in, in the wrestling profession, you know, I always said that uh, if you're going to make it, you, you first of all you got to love it, and you got to have uh, perseverance because it is not the easiest business. A lot of disappointment, a lot of uh, uh, you know bumps in the road, and then uh, if you have talent, you love it, you persevere. You still need help from people, and I, like most others that were successful, had a lot of help from a lot of people throughout my career. And then, I mean, you could you could love it and 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 put your heart into it and have people try to help you, but that. That fourth thing is the one that that's so elusive that, that no one ever captures, and that is just the sheer luck of being in the right place at the right time. And that's what happened with the horseman. I was the right place at the right time and was able to uh, take advantage of it, and boy, what a run we had. Now, when you look at that and you, you talk about that the four horsemen, it kind of you know happened organically, and 
you know, guys were allowed to, um, you know, do their own thing, kind of not be scripted. Uh, do, do you think that that's missing uh, a bit in today's product where guys are, are more or less, uh, at least when we hear uh, scripted and tied to saying exactly what they're supposed to say, whereas uh, in your era, a lot of guys were just kind of given leeway uh, to cut promos, whatever style they wanted to. Do you, do you find, like, in today's product uh, that spontaneity is kind of missing? Well, let me answer answer it this way, that if in I was breaking into the business today, uh, I don't know that I would be a success in the, in, in the business because I took great pride in preparing for my interviews, of being able to get out there and say whatever I said in what came across as a very spontaneous way where, in fact, uh, there was a lot of mental preparation on my part, and I took pride in wanting to make myself different from everyone else. And I I look at, you know, we, we recently lost, two of the, the all-time greats when it turned, when it came to, you know, being out there and, uh, and being on an interview. And, I'm, of course, I'm talking about the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm talking about Roddy Roddy Piper. And I just can't imagine, uh, you know, when I look at a stone-cold Steve Austin, I, I, I mean, I can't imagine someone who I don't care you could have stacks of Emmys and Oscars and whatever else uh, on the wall as to how much creative ability you have and script writing or whatever. I can't imagine anyone being able to tell uh, a Dusty Rhodes or a Roddy Piper or a Stone Cold Steve Austin what to say. Um, you know, it just, it, it came from their heart and they, they just, they ha- there's that what they call it factor, and it's charisma, and it's something that you can't teach somebody. You either got it or you don't. Dusty had it. Uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper had it. Stone Cold Steve Austin had it, and that's just a few. The Rocks got it. They go out there, and they just, uh, you know, they, 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 it's the magic of the moment, and I think that is missing today. And a lot of guys, you you, you read critiques, well, you know, he's, he's something missing with his interviews. You know, he just doesn't grab the people. Well, the problem is with the environment of the business today, these guys never had to learn. They don't know what they're capable of doing because they're never given that chance and they're never given an opportunity to even attempt to perfect that aspect of the business. So, I'm uh, I'm not a big fan. I don't care how gifted writers are of uh, you know scripting things for people to say. And back in the day, we didn't even need to be given the bullet points. We knew because we were out there every week. We knew what was coming up in terms of a of a pay per view or a big match or an extravaganza. We knew who our nemesis was that 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 we needed to talk about. And we gave a lot of thought to what we might say, and and some of it, uh, you know, we would say what we thought we were thinking about, and sometimes we would get out there and and whatever somebody else said, you know, gave you uh, uh, another thought, and you ran with it. And so every every interview was different, and uh, and I think that had a lot to do with uh, our longevity. 
Do you think, you know, you brought up a few, and, and again, it's such a tragic loss, losing such great, uh, you know, Dusty and Piper, such legends, uh, so close to each other. Uh, you brought up a few names that have that, that kind of it factor, that charisma. Uh, you did say that, you know, the, the guy who threw up the four fingers, Arn Anderson. Uh, do you ever think, like, you know, in terms of history, his name is not one that readily is on the tip of uh, people's tongues. Do you think that uh, he's a bit underrated as far as, both like his promo work and his in-ring work. Uh, give us your thoughts on, on Arn Anderson. Well, he certainly was for a long time. Uh, he was uh, a workhorse. And if you look back and replay the uh, the comments of the American Dream, Dusty Rose, when we were inducted into the, to the WWE Hall of Fame in 2012, and if you heard the whole, the whole thing, not the edited version, you know, he talked about the war games and how brutal they were and that the guy that started them all was was Arn Anderson and he would be in there for the entire time because the match couldn't end till all five guys from each team were in there and it was only then that the match could be decided one way or another so that said a lot about Arn's ability uh, and you know he when he talked Said that, and it was true. I never really thought about it till he talked about it. That you know, we weren't all in the same match every night in the arena, and there was a kind of subtle competitiveness amongst us, not to go out there and, and necessarily say ahead of time, "Well, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that." You just you Arn went out there, as did uh, the other horsemen, and and left it all out there. When they came back, there was nothing left. And if Arn went out there and tore the place down, he, he didn't need anything to be said when he came back. It was kind of that, okay, follow that one. And it was a subtle competition for each of us, knowing that that's where the bar was set on any given night. And I always said about Flair, I think one of the reasons that he's uh, one of the greatest champions of all time is because his work ethic, uh, it didn't matter if we were in an arena with 25,000 people or if we were in an arena that had 2,000 or 3,000 or 5,000. Uh, there were a lot of guys in the business that if if we went to an arena that had 3,000 people because either the television show was preempted or something happened that, that we didn't get the crowd that we thought we were going to be, and a lot of guys would say, well, you know, we can kind of take it easy and lay back tonight and not go out there. Well, that wasn't Ric Flair's mindset. Uh, and he always felt, and I think the rest of us, I know the rest of us did, that if we went there and there was a crowd of several thousand people, we had the same obligation to those individuals who put down their hard-earned money for a ticket because they came with an anticipation of what to expect. And we had an obligation to go out there and deliver up to their expectations and if at all possible, which we try to do, exceed them every night. So it wasn't a question of, is it easier when you got 25,000 people to go out there? Yeah, because uh, uh, in some ways you could feed off the crowd. But in terms of the energy that you put into it and the pride that you take, uh, the horseman never took any shortcuts. And I think that also is a, a factor in our longevity because the fans knew didn't matter how many people were there. If we were there and we were in the ring that night, 
they knew they didn't know specifically what we were going to do, but they knew when they left at the end of the night, went home, that they got their money's worth. And when you talk about the horsemen and and you know the work ethic and everything that that went on, I mean there were so many incarnations of the, the horsemen. Do you have a, a favorite? Um, and your thoughts uh, on the horsemen uh, after you weren't a part of the horsemen? Well, I've been asked that question many times, and I, I, there's not one single answer that that I that I give. But I, the original horseman with Oli will always be special because I think that if it had not been that chemistry, if that first night on TBS when we went out there and I and I kind of said it in the, in the Hall of Fame comments that the, you know the, the the planets and the moons and the stars and everything was in perfect alignment and something magical happened at that moment and and it did and so if you take Ole out of that equation and he not been there maybe everything that followed would never have happened either so Sure, you know, Flair was the one that set the, the tone with the, you know, the limousine ride and jet flying, jet, you know, kiss stealing, jet flying, whatever, son of a gun. You know, that was kind of the 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 way they looked at us. And, and I was a little bit older, but, you know, Arn, Tully, we could all have some swagger about us and that, that we could, you know, follow suit with Rick. And, but Ole was towards the end of his career, and Ole was kind of the grumpy, cantankerous old man <laughs> and really didn't fit into that mold. And so when he got moved out, it accomplished two things. It, it opened uh, a spot because Luger became available, and it was at that point we were so established that Luger, as inexperienced as he was, we could move him in there and camouflage it. But Ole drew money. Ole was one of the greatest of all time. Hall of Famer, in my uh, opinion. And his matches were the same. His interviews were the same. And by him now being across the ring uh, gave us uh, a fresh opponent. And so that was a, a bonus of it. So Ole, the original group, will always be special. We had a good run with Luger, but we shocked the wrestling world when Barry jumped sides and came with us. And then, uh, as I've said about Barry already, uh one of the all-time greats, and I think that grouping of the horsemen with Barry, bell to bell, I don't know that there's anybody else that could have touched us uh, on on any given night. And, you know, at that point, uh, we'd had a run for a period of time, and, and what was also unique about us, a lot of times when you get so hot that when you're beaten – uh, you know, there's a lot of monsters in the business. The first time that they lose, they never have that same aura about them. You know, they lose a lot of their luster. And we got beat a lot more than we won. And there are many nights that we left the ring, you know, you know, kind of crawling out of the ring, you know, dripping in our own blood. But we would go on TV, still have the bragging rights of the belts, and be able to give our version of what happened and get the people so mad that they wanted us back in the ring to get our butts kicked even worse than what we had on on any night in question. So we had that that special chemistry that even though we got beat, the people just wanted to come back and see this get beat some more. And then after a while, they loved to hate us. And uh, once Tully and Arn had an opportunity, to go to New York 
with Bobby the Brain Heenan as the Brain Busters. I mean, that's where everybody perceived the big, big money to be. And it was an opportunity for Tully and Arn, and uh, they wanted to leave. And actually, it was right as the, you know, Crockett Promotions were bought by Turner, and uh, a lot of things were, you know, uncertain, not real sure about what was going to happen. And I got a call from Tully not too long after that, which opened the door for me to, to, um, you know, be able to speak to him up there because they were interested in me, and I left. So, as I look back. The group with Ole was special. The group with Barry, I think, was in-ring, bell-to-bell, the absolute best. And wrestling promoters have a tendency, always have and probably always will, that when something is successful in the ring, they'll ride that thing past its prime and, and ride that thing till it, uh, till it drops over. And so that's what happened with the horsemen, too. And I, I just don't get caught in the conversations where I look. For me, when Tully and Arn left, the glory years of the Horsemen were done. And I know that, that Flair came back and Arn came back for a little bit, and there were different incarnations. But for me, when they left that first time and I left shortly thereafter, uh, uh, that was it. And I you know I don't want to get into a conversation. Sting was a Horseman at one time, and you know how much I think of him uh, Steve McMichael, great, great athlete who was not really experienced as a wrestler, but a great athlete, great football player. But I, I, I would never go down a checklist of names and say, yep, I think he deserved to be in or know that he didn't. Or I don't get into a conversation where people will say, well, you know, of the, of the roster today, who would be a great horseman? I don't know that answer. So I kind of limit my uh, – you know, my discussions to the, the original group with Ole and, and the group with uh, with Barry. JJ, Dave Rosenbluth here. Just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on this evening. It's an honor and a privilege. Uh, you made mention earlier of, you know, being in all different aspects of the wrestling business, and you just talked about your time with the Horsemen and Jim Crockett Promotions, and I'd like for you to kind of go through the transition from being an on-air talent as the leader of the Four Horsemen, to then going to New York and working for Vince McMahon in a management backstage role. Tell me what that experience, that transition was like and working side-by-side side with, uh, with with Vince McMahon. Well, I, I my dream as a kid was to be a professional wrestler. So I, I got to live my dream. Once I had my foot in the door after being a referee for eight years, which that experience enabled me, I think, to be a better wrestler, and, and being a wrestler enabled me when the time came to be the best manager that I could be. So it's kind of like um, a good craftsman, no matter what you do, the more tools you have in your toolbox that you know how to use, uh, the better equipped you are to do whatever the task at hand is. Um, as I said, with the regional territories, I got involved, and I was around some of the great, great minds in the business, uh, you know, I spent a year in Amarillo with the Funks. I was around Bob Geigel. I was around Fritz von Erich. Uh, the person who probably had the greatest influence on me was Eddie Graham. I looked at him as being my my mentor who, here's a guy with a seventh-grade education that, to me, had his Ph.D. in wrestling. He was a genius in terms of crowd psychology and the timing and what have you. So I had all of this knowledge, and I also knew because I started so late, like I said, Father Time wasn't on my side. So when I got a chance to to step out, 
you know, it wasn't a total shock. I knew that day was going to have to come at some point. And really, uh, when I was a referee, I, I was around Vince Sr. a lot. He used to come to Philadelphia once a month for the big shows and got to be around him. He called me by my first name, knew me. And then here I am kind of being recruited by his son uh, at the end of my career. So that in and of itself is a, a pretty fast, fascinating story. And I had done all these aspects of the business from talent travel to what have you. And now I, I, I get to what was then the, the WWF, and I find that everything is on a much, much grander scale. And where I used to do wear 10 hats on a much smaller scale, they had professionals individually who were specialists doing each segment that I used to do on a kind of a small-time basis. So it was um, a real eye-opener to see how wrestling you know, could be operated on such a grand scale. And they weren't all necessarily wrestling fans. They, uh, they were just specialists in whatever they did, and the only thing that Vince demanded was that they at least watch the television and be familiar with the core product. And so for the years that I was there, and Vince was not always the easiest guy to work with, but uh, I enjoyed the opportunity. I enjoyed being around him. I learned in this business, I don't care what you say, if you're honest, you never, ever stop learning because the business changes. And, uh, you know, you have to change with it. And, um, it, you know, the disappointment was when I left there and went to uh, – to Turner, I thought that's where I'd end my career, and then I—that I, was the stark realization of what happens when you don't have a Vince McMahon, who is third, fourth generation in the family, running a wrestling business. That's all they did, which though wrestling is simplistic in its concept—good versus evil, what have you—you you know, the, it's to run a business profitably because it's not like football or or hockey or baseball, or it's seasonal. Wrestling is 52 weeks out of the year. It's a it's a, a, an episodic soap opera that never ends, and that's a challenge to be able to stay on top of it and and ride the ebbs and flows. And so it was a great experience uh, being there. Never stopped learning, and uh, I, I still learn today because I look and the guys that are in the business today are bigger and stronger than than the guys when I was there they're they're doing things that we would never have dreamed of doing they're they're great athletes uh but it's just a changing business and I'm happy that I look back and and you know and I talk with friends like Terry Funk or Kevin Sullivan who is another great mind in the business and and look back and say hey the time that I was active in my career were what I consider the glory days of wrestling. And I'm so thankful that that's when I was, was in the business. And uh, business everything changes, and wrestling is no different. And I just uh, thrilled that, that uh, I had the time to be in the business when I did and to go to places, to go to Japan, go to Australia, uh, to wrestle on Madison Square Garden. I mean, all my dreams came true. And just the uh, luckiest guy in the world. And now I've, I've got two Hall of Fame rings. And when I started the business, there was no such thing as a Hall of Fame. That was Cooperstown in baseball. So the fact that uh, I have two rings, uh, I think, validates 
you know, what I did accomplish. And I, and I was in working around Vince McMahon in talent relations. It's a tough job because you are usually the uh, the conveyor of, of of not happy news. And I was I had some degree of success and longevity in that part of it because I had walked a mile in the guy's shoes. And I sat in the other position, and so if somebody approached me, I I knew how to do it. And guys aren't always going to like you. you. You can't be liked by everybody in the business like that, but it's it's like anything in life. you got to give respect to get respect. And I always showed the guys respect. It might not have been good news, but it was done in a respectful way. And uh, if I take nothing away from the business but that, uh, my integrity and the fact that uh, I have respect, that's what I'm proudest of. You know, continuing on with your time in talent relations, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that you were the somewhat of the bearer of bad news to some of the talent. Um, were there any instances of individuals in your mind that you would have liked to have signed what, during your time in the World Wrestling Federation, but whether it was due to um, – Say so from Vince McMahon or other instances or other circumstances that th- those signings just didn't happen to to come to fruition. Uh, you know, I don't even know that I can answer that because v- what a lot of people did not realize, and you would think people in the business would get it. And as I look back, I, it's easier to understand that there was no upside to being upset with Vince McMahon about anything. And Vince was the final say on everything. And he took credit for everything that was good and none of the heat for anything that wasn't. That was your job in, in talent relations. And the same thing came with uh, decisions. And Vince kind of had maybe a little bit more narrow uh, perception than I did of what a wrestler should be, should look like, what have you. And he liked that. And if you look back, he liked that muscular look. He liked the Hulk Hogan, the Ultimate Warrior Superstar Graham, um, you know, Lex Luger, you know, he liked that because Vince liked to work out himself. So that was the one that had the greatest appeal to him. And Jerry Jarrett came up there and I think opened his eyes a little bit that, uh, you know, there are guys like, I, I think if Jared had not been there, you might not have seen a Shawn Michaels or even a Bret Hart. Not that Bret Hart's not a big, big guy. But uh, I don't think he would have ever seen a Rey Mysterio because of the size factor and so forth. But, uh, you know, Vince is uh, – I still think he likes what he likes, but he also realizes that there's money that can be drawn, uh, you know, with other things, with other looks. And I can't think of anybody that in that period of time – because what I used to do was folk – I didn't look at the other program. Whoever was signing my check, had 99.9% of my attention. Not that you, you know, live in a vacuum. Sure, you would hear about other guys who were successful somewhere, and if our paths crossed and they came in and Vince wanted to see him, you know, I might express an opinion, but ultimately my opinion was just that. Vince was the one that made the decision, and, and we went with whatever he wanted, and and sometimes I had to be the one to... uh you know, let the people know that Vince didn't have interest with them, and I always try to do that in a uh, professional way too. You know, and some guys, uh, you know, thought that 
well, you know, I didn't get a chance because JJ didn't like me or whatever, and and which was never the case. But and most guys eventually, if they didn't know it the first time around, eventually figured it out. It's, you know, it's interesting that you you discuss you talk about how Vince has the final say in the matter. Uh, there was an interview you did on actually Jim Ross's podcast where you where you talked about your um, your involvement in hiring the Undertaker in uh, in 1990, and uh, recently on Ric Flair's podcast, Bruce Pritchard discussed um, how Vince McMahon was not in favor of hiring the Undertaker, and it was actually Paul Heyman who was the middleman between. Or actually, I'm sorry, he was the one that was pushing Pritchard to talk to McMahon to at least take a look at The Undertaker. Um, can you discuss your involvement in hiring Undertaker and if there's any truth to those rumors of the, of your knowledge about uh, Vince not wanting to hire The Undertaker at first? Uh, I did not hire The Undertaker. Vince hires everybody. But the, the meeting that took place with The, uh, with, uh, the Undertaker, which a lot of meetings took place, uh, in 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 the office, a lot of guys who became huge stars. Triple H is one. Uh, you know, met at the office. Uh, there were other guys who he met privately with. He met privately with me with, with me in in his home because it was one of those deals where if it didn't work out, um, you know, he wanted to kept quiet that the meeting had taken place. No one else in the office even knew, and. You know, I could have used that as leverage to maybe get a better deal with WCW had I not, you know, felt good with uh, however the meeting went with Vince. Same thing with Undertaker. He he met with Vince at his uh, his uh, at his house. It was Vince, uh, Undertaker, and myself. And what I what I what I do remember is that Vince's first reaction, looking at him, you know, size and what have you, he he made some comment about him maybe being a Viking. You know, with the helmet and the horns, and I and I that still lingers in the back of my mind. And but Vince had a uh, a, a department that was part of the art department that would then meet with a talent that Vince had interest with. Just uh, I think a lot of it was chemistry too, where Vince would meet with somebody and just he had gut instincts, and and he would then say, you know, I want you to go down there and meet with uh, the people, and I want them to just kind of come up with some things and feed me some ideas and see if something jumps out at me. And I, and that's what happened with the undertaker. And I don't remember, um, it could be the, the Paul Heyman or, you know, Bruce Pritchard or somebody else had input as well that I don't remember. But of course, looking back, uh, I, you know, if you said to me, what is the greatest character that you can ever remember in all the time that, you know, either before or after, with uh, the WWF slash WWE, hands down, it would be the Undertaker, because there's a guy who just really didn't do a lot when you think about it, and he uh, changed. He went from being the dead man. He was a kind of a biker character for a while, but he has uh, longevity is the greatest test of anything, and he has withstood the test of time over and over again. And to me, is the greatest character that's uh, ever ever been produced by by that company. Continuing with your time in the World Wrestling Federation, Ric Flair, an individual you were very familiar with, managing him in Jim Crockett Promotions, came to the World Wrestling Federation in late 1991. Internally, amongst 
everyone in the company and yourself, what were the thoughts on Ric Flair's overall run with the World Wrestling Federation the first time around? Well, there's two things, you know, that, that, that I could comment on. Number one is Vince, I've been asked before, well, why didn't Vince, you know, bring the horsemen together? Well, Vince has a thing about if it wasn't his idea and it wasn't something that he generated, he just doesn't want to run with it. And you could make the argument that Demolition were really his version of the Road Warriors. Uh, eventually the Road Warriors got there, but in the meantime, you know, he had created Demolition that was his version he created of what much of the Road Warriors were about. Vince would never have taken the horsemen and run with them just because they were not his original idea. Flair is such a great, great talent that when he came there, um, you know, he high expectations, and I think Rick is still there because he's a unique talent and that there's nobody else come along to, to be what he is or do what he's done better than what he's done even at this stage of his career. Now his daughter, you know, this week it was, uh, you know, great that uh, that she so quickly, and, and, and I have to give credit to, to Triple H too because the NXT thing has kind of been his, his little baby, and it's obvious that the people that they're producing out of there, he, they're doing something right. So this guy, um, he was trained with Killer Kowalski. Uh, he's somebody who has that core knowledge in the business that, you know, he's been brought into the WWE Universe system, which I think you have to. He's married to the daughter, and and he's got that influence of being around Vince. But, you know, he's been able to kind of carve his own niche with the NXT thing. And, God, that thing has just uh, uh, been a a great success and producing great talent and hopefully will continue because that's the future of our business. But with Flair, Flair and Hogan were put together, and everybody had high expectations. And I remember that the, the results weren't. What any and again, it's back to that thing. You have this great idea that something can't miss, and Hulk and 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 Flair uh, matched with the under the banner of the WWF at that time. Just didn't do what everybody thought it would be. And I remember Vince making the comment, "Well, I booked that match five years too late." It's interesting. Uh, you talk about you know Hulk Hogan, another individual you worked with also in, in uh, World Championship Wrestling. Somebody who he's closely associated with is Eric Bischoff, and you made your way back to WCW. Um, from what I understand, in kind of a on-air authority, authority figure kind of role, um, WWE Network this week is actually doing a uh, sit-down interview with Eric Bischoff. Can you discuss? your time in World Championship Wrestling in the late 90s, and what it was like to work with Eric Bischoff. I never met Eric Bischoff. Um, when I parted company with Vince, I had twins that were oh, four years old, one of whom had special needs, and another baby that was like less than just over, over two years old. And so... Um, I left and called Tony Schiavone. He set up an interview with Bischoff, 
And when I met and saw him for the first time, I had no idea what to expect from him. And I thought, here's a guy who, um, as I look back now, you know, I I didn't know if I, you know, he would have interest in me, but I had been so high profile in the business that I think the people above him, had I not been hired, and I was only a consultant at first because they did have a hiring freeze. The uh, AOL Time Warner thing had just taken place, and they, they had a hiring freeze. So I was a consultant for like 60 days before I was officially hired. But um, I, I thought, you know, here's a guy who, you know, was enjoying some success, and I figured he's going to ask a lot of questions of me, obviously, you know, proprietary information I couldn't divulge because that would have been inappropriate. But he could ask me a lot of things about how things were run, you know, the philosophy of what they did and so forth and so on. And all he talked about was his obsession to put Vince out of business. And it's like, well, how much longer can he hang on? And I'm sitting there listening to him. And I didn't, you know, I needed to feed my family. The last thing I was going to say to him, well, if you think you're going to put him out of business, uh, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. Um, Eric Bischoff, when he looked at me, he could have looked at me in one of two ways. He could have looked at me as somebody who had this wealth of experience, who, who could have been a resource to him to maybe tap into to help him take the WCW to another level. Or the other side of the coin is somebody who had had the experience that I had could also look at him and expose him as being someone who absolutely had no idea what they were doing. And I think it was more the latter. And I never really had any kind of a relationship with Eric Bischoff because I think he kind of hired me and then kept me at a distance from him because um, I could, you know, I would always be the threat to expose that he didn't know what he was doing. And over a period of time, he just went rampant with the production costs, and there was the absence of a Vince McMahon figure who understood the wrestling business. And all the TBS people did was look at the the ratings. They would look at the the arena when it was full when they would do a thing in uh, in the Omni and say, oh wow, you know the ratings are great and everything else is going to take care of itself. And it wasn't because he was spending money like crazy because it wasn't his money. And the talent manipulated him. Where with Vince, you didn't have that type of atmosphere. And the one thing that people forget is that Vince um, basically pioneered the licensing. And, and merchandising part of the business. And there were guys there getting huge checks. I mean, I somebody said the Iron Sheik, when those figures first came out, made more money from those things in licensing than he did uh, in live events for, for a year. And once you get down to WCW, there's that part of the revenue stream that the talent coming over don't have anymore. And so they could go to Eric and say, hey, you know, oh, hey, I'm, you know, I'm used to these big fat checks. You're going to have to make it up to me somewhere else. And the other thing that Eric did was where Vince didn't go out after TVs and, and get drunk with the boys and party with the boys. Eric would go out and get hammered, and the guys would sit and wait for their opportunity and pull him off to the side, and, and he would promise them whatever they wanted. And then the next day, the phone calls would come into the office, and Eric would call me and say, I got so-and-so on the phone, and 
I I don't exactly remember what the what our conversation was all about. Why don't you talk to him and then get back to me? You know, and the guy would get on the phone and the guy'd say, "Well, he promised me, you know, first class airfare and he'd take care of this, my rental cars." And I'd call Eric back and say, "Well, you promised him this, promised him that. Well, I guess if I did, I guess that's what I got to do." And the end result was they ended up with guaranteed contracts and what have you that uh you know when when the revenue stream wasn't there the the expense of what was guaranteed was there and and the losses were you know they couldn't at one point they I was reported 80 million dollar losses and it was like oh we got to cut they were losing 5 million dollars a month cut 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 well the only place you could cut was the underneath talent, which is not where the problem was. And after they did all that cutting, they were at a point where they were looking at a $60 million loss and a projected $60 million loss for the following year. And AOL Time Warner said, you know, we're a broadcast company. We're not in the wrestling business. We don't need this division. And kiss a goodbye. And that's what happened. Wow. And then, JJ, thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. And uh, I got one more question for you. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing listening to your career and in all aspects of, of what you've been through, uh, you know, long time in the wrestling business. And uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on, on the current product now. And in reference to, with the context of John Cena, uh, you know, you had said earlier in the interview, you know, ultimately the crowd is a judge and jury. 2015, the, the climate, uh, the landscape is, is different uh, you know, you got crowds that will just downright turn on John Cena. Um, your, your thoughts on, on Cena and what he's doing, uh, you know, is, it unju- is he unjustly being booed? And also uh, the, the business as a whole, what your thoughts are? Well, I'm a big fan of John Cena. First of all, as a, as a, uh, as a, as a, a person, you know, what he's doing without any fanfare with these make-a-wish things, uh he's the guy who who does it above and beyond more than anyone else and you know he will always be special no matter what the business is changed where you have a Brock Lesnar or you have a, the Rock or or you have a Ronda Rossi come in because you need something different to make WrestleMania or a pay-per-view event uh special but in order for the business to, because you're doing television every week, you you need to have your Seth Rollins. You need to have your Roman Reigns. You need to have your John Cena. And it's funny, you know, I hear the people boo him too. And I don't know, you know, what it is. But if I'm not mistaken, I think in terms of merchandise sales, he's still the top guy. So somebody likes him. And I respect him because he's out there 50-some weeks out of the year. You have to have a core in your talent roster that's out there in the live event shows that helps drive merchandise, helps drive everything else. And there's always going to be a certain amount of underlying, I don't know if it's jealousy or animosity because uh, Lesnar comes in and out and, and has limited dates or a rock well, you know, The Rock doesn't even need to come back. He, I think, was the second highest grossing uh, male actor in action movies for last year. He doesn't need to come back. He comes back because he has respect for the business, 
because of the legacy of his grandfather and his father. And he comes back because that's still in his DNA and he still has a passion for the business. And a couple times when he's come back, he's had some injuries as a result of it. But John Cena and these other guys are there that are toting the wagon every week, and I respect them for it. It's still a talent-driven business. Uh, the only thing that I see is that they're doing a lot of television and don't have great, great depth in, in their talent roster. And you have somebody that gets hurt the old days in the territory days, you could, you could pull on somebody else to come in and, and fill that spot and keep on going. You don't have that kind of depth anymore. And I think that's what makes the NXT segment of this even more important because you're, you don't have the regional territories. You don't have WCW. Uh, talent have got to come from somewhere. And I, I hope the business continues to be successful because I love the business. I loved it when I started as a kid. I still love it. And, uh, you know, I would hate to see uh, the business come to an end, and I don't think it ever will. It's going to have its ups and downs. But, uh, uh, you know, they've made WrestleMania into uh, uh, the Super Bowl of wrestling. There's people that don't watch wrestling all year that will support the uh, WrestleMania. And I think as long as they can continue to do what they're doing, you know they'll they'll do well, and as a public company, of course, they have to answer to stockholders and what have you. So, though Vince is the final say, he's also got to be one to to kind of phrase everything in a way that uh, the stockholders are going to be able to digest it. Yeah, I, I, thank you so much. I mean, we're got to spend uh, quite a quite a lot of time with a legendary manager. Uh, the Four Horsemen, J.J. Dillon. Uh, great. I, mean, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us. Uh, great time tonight. Uh, just, I, I don't know, do you have any uh, website, Twitter, Facebook you'd like to promote? Any yeah, appearance? I, I have a website. It's www.jjdillon.com. Not too hard to forget. <laughs> uh, the, I, it's kind of been on high. It's still there, and uh, there's some changes that I would like to, to, to see happen to be able to update it and and uh, that's not happening right at the moment, and that's you know something that I'm having to work on. But there's a lot of uh, you know early pictures from my career, uh, stuff from my family from the WWE Hall of Fame ceremony. I'm very proud of the fact that I'm also in the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, and I'm on the board of directors there. I'm a lifetime member of the Cauliflower Alley Club. Uh, this year, for the first time, I went to the uh, to the Tragos. Fez Hall of Fame ceremony up in Waterloo, Iowa, and had an incredible time up there. Uh, met Charlie Fez for the first time. I'd seen her, but never met her. Met her. Met the daughter of Jim Londis. Met the son of George Tragos, who was one of the, the, the founders. And Jerry Briscoe was the one that encouraged me to go there. And uh, I, I'm, I've already made a commitment. My my son is into amateur wrestling, even though he's physically handicapped. But we're we're going to go back uh, for ceremonies uh, again this year. I had a wonderful time. It's the the Dan Gable Museum in Waterloo is a very very special place, and uh, you know the 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 artist uh, Rob Schumberger that 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 he did a mural up there that he was working on when I went up there. That's wall to wall an unbelievable thing to see so 
my autobiography, the original version, the hard copy version, was uh, 10 years ago, and it sold out uh, oh, a couple of years ago, and there's a, 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 a soft cover version, the same content and everything that's still out there. Uh, and uh, the thing that at Amazon.com was the Kindle thing now where people are being able to get the book without actually having to carry it around. So that's done extremely well, too. But I encourage you to go to jjdillon.com. Uh, we get hits from all over the world. It's amazing. And, and what amazes me is about 80% of the people that go there are first-time viewers. So uh, worth looking at. Very cool. Again, easy to remember, but uh, just in case you didn't remember, we just popped that link up on our Facebook page, so be sure to go and check that Thank out you again. Thank very much. And one thing I want to say in conclusion is I I, I never, you know, the success that I've had and the, and the fact that I have two Hall of Fame rings was not because I consider myself uh, great in, in, in no matter how you define greatness. I was never the biggest or the best. Granted, nobody wanted it more, was willing to work harder than I was, but the only reason that I've had success, that the Four Horsemen had success, the professional wrestling had success, and continues to succeed today, is the greatest fans in the world, are the fans of professional wrestling. And that's who I attribute my, my whatever success I had, and I never uh, miss an opportunity, no matter where you live in the world, Thank you for your support, not only of me and the horsemen, but of professional wrestling in general. I tip my hat to you, the greatest fans in the world. And that, that is the, the best way to close it. Thank you so much. All the best. Uh, take care, and uh, love to have you on down the road a piece again. Uh, thank you. All right. Very good. Enjoy it, guys. Have a good night. Thank and you, there you have it. Um, Dave, Wow. <laughs> Uh, I'm like sitting here like, ah, geez, I'm, I'm throwing my four fingers up in the air. Uh, I, I am just, um, you know, trying to be a pro here, uh, but a little bit giddy, uh, just, just absolute, I mean, not enough good things that I can say about JJ Dillon, who, you know, sat with us for over an hour, talked about new stuff, talked about his career, uh, just a nicest guy, you know, and closes it thanking the fans, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to think about it, but I got to say, Dave, one of my favorite interviews. Easily, in my opinion, and I'm not saying this because it just happened right now, but easily my favorite interview I've ever conducted. And one of the reasons why is because I watched a lot of J.J. Dillon when I was a young kid. You know, I, I grew up watching WWF wrestling. That's where it started for me. But when I went on the television and I watched, you know, Jim Crockett Promotions and the NWA, you know, J.J. Dillon was front and center with the four horsemen. I saw him every single Saturday morning. I mean, and and I wouldn't say he had an influence on me, but I look at him in high regard as a manager and what he's done in the wrestling business, like in the top echelon. And for me to interview a man of his stature and what he's done in the wrestling business, it's truly, an, I'm not just saying this, like I said, because this interview just happened, and I'm living in this moment right now. I'm saying it because it's 100% fact. It's truly an honor and a privilege that he that he gave us an hour of his time to talk with us about his career and his thoughts on his past in the wrestling business and what goes on in today. Truly an honor. I can't I can't say enough. I put a post on on, on my Facebook page about it. Like truly an honor. Like I'm marking out right now. Hashtag <laughs> mark marking out. 
You know, and it's awesome because like I'm doing the internet, it's like you got all sorts of great stuff, and then like the best is like I have this just this image of a drunk Eric Bischoff just promising things left and right, like just <laughs> hanging out with the boys in the bar and just. You know, hey, you know, I, I kind of want that the cruiserweight there. Hey, sure, I'll give you the cruise. You know, it's like just that story. I was like, wow, you know, that's uh, that's intriguing stuff. Where you know, thinking that, you know, when you look at like the companies, and and what I found interesting about that is I, over the, over the years since the, the Monday Night Wars, and you start to hear the different stories, and and there there were so many like small chinks in the armor with WCW that 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 caused the demise. And when you look at that idea of, of Vince McMahon was a promoter, he was a businessman, you know, he was in charge and, and, you know, Eric Bischoff was a guy for better or worse, kind of liked being with the boys and, uh, you know, maybe had one too many at times and was promising things he shouldn't promise. Uh, and I, and I found that real. I mean, as much as it was a, it was kind of a funny story, but at the same time, over the years, you hear like a, a story here, a story there, where you realize, wow, it wasn't just one thing with WCW. It was a lot of little things that kind of crept in and really caused the demise of that company. Well, I mean, there's there's been DVDs on, on, on it and books and, and, and shoot interviews. And like you said, so many different stories that have gone around. I mean, it, it does not surprise me one single bit. You know, it's funny. I would, to, to prepare for this interview, I was watching, you know, some uh, – some WCW stuff on the WWE network. And I watched um, a little bit of the, uh, the, the, the first look preview of the Monday night war DVD that has come out again, the Monday, the volume two, and they have this, they have exclusive interviews with Bischoff and Bischoff says that one of the things that he, that he, um, that he regrets doing in his, you know, during his time as president of world championship wrestling was not being enough of a boss with the boys and instead, he, he he wishes he didn't become too friendly with the talent. And J.J. Dillon, you know, makes a perfect example of, of you know, Eric Bischoff going out and just kind of getting drunk with the guys and, 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 and almost being one of the boys, you know. And, and that, to me, I, you know, it, 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 it's, it's telling not only just in the wrestling business, but in all aspects of life. Like, how many people do you know go out and they get hammered with their boss and get whatever they want from their boss. How many people do you know that does that in, the, in, today's, in today's world? Not very many. You know, there's certain instances where some people are closer with their bosses and their superiors and those, but there isn't an overwhelming majority of individuals that go out and they go, go out for happy hours and get hammered drunk with their boss and, 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 and end up benefiting from it afterwards. So it's overall, just the whole experience, with the interview tonight and then the stories, just unbelievable. Yeah, it's just uh, just amazing stuff. And, you know, and you guys, I got to tell you, fans, uh, you know, apologies. We're not going to get to everybody. A lot of you guys have been on hold for a while. I mean, we really didn't know what to expect. You know, we've done interviews where, uh, you know, it's it's 15 minutes. We've done interviews where, like, sometimes it's like pulling teeth and it's like, geez, let's, let's wrap this up quick. Um, you know, so we really didn't know where this was going to go, but there was no – you know, and the funny thing was, even at, at the, the hour plus that we did with J.J., I probably could have asked him, like, you know, a dozen more questions, uh, you know, and, and I would have him back on because there's other things I, I'd like to ask him. But um, you guys have been on hold. You've been patient. I'm going to try and get to a few calls here. Look, I mean, J- 
J.J. Dillon's the, the, the topic right now. You want to talk about J.J. Cool the gang. You want to talk uh, about Night of Champions. Uh, we'll take that, too. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to try and squeeze in a couple, so let's go back out to the phones. And we got Anthony, who's on the line. A.C., how you doing this evening? What's up, guys? Uh, dude, tremendous, tremendous interview. Uh, I enjoyed every second of it. Oh, it just, he got into so much. I almost want to, like, I don't even know where to go. I mean, he when he was talking about uh, kind of the promos, when he was talking about Piper and Dusty, and he was so cold, just kind of letting them go, and uh, how they're doing things different today. You know, we've talked about that a hundred times. Um, just tremendous interview. Uh, I mean, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> it was so good. But, uh Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm at that point too, where it's like, again, I'm sitting there with a perma smile. Uh, it was, he was great. It was, it was just great stories, um, you know. And and I mean, it was, you know, he said it, and, and I believe him to be right, um, you know, that he lived through the the golden age of wrestling, and to be able to to sit here and, and absorb uh, that sort of knowledge and those stories from someone who. You know, like us, wasn't watching the golden age of wrestling, was living through it, was essentially creating uh, this golden age. Um, it, it's just tremendous. It's tremendous to, to be able to, to just be a part of that and to, you know, for him to be so cordial and, and, and give us the time. Uh, it, it, it's just, it's tough to put into words uh, what this interview was. It was, it was just, uh, he was just great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and for somebody who kind of, uh, dealt with so many of the players. Like, he dealt with all these players we always talk about, Vince and Bischoff, and he just, he was around everyone. So, I mean, I, I mean, I'll just pretty, you know, pretty much leave it at that, guys. Just awesome job and, uh, you know, great show. I mean, that was, uh, that's one of those hours of your life you uh, truly enjoy. So that's the best way I could sum it up. Yeah, yeah, I mean you're right. It's it's like one of those like kind of bucket list things, you know. It's uh, right. you know, and it is one of those things. I'll tell you right now, man. Like I'll I'll be using this as far as name dropping, man. Like when you go <laughs> around and you're like, yeah, I do a wrestling podcast, and it's like, oh yeah, one of those. You know? Yeah, but I, I I had an hour with JJ Dillon, so bam, I'm gonna yeah, drop right. <laughs> I will drop that name every chance I get. So. uh yeah, good night Absolutely tonight, you and you thank you. thanks a lot for the phone call, and uh, we'll talk to you uh, real soon. All right, boys, awesome job. I'll uh, talk to you down the road. Take it easy, brother. Thanks, brother. AC, let's let's stick with the phones because we got Rocky here who is on the line. Uh, Rocky, how you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing great after that interview. Can't how about you? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, you know we're all kind of uh, you know we're kind of riding the cloud nine here. Is Fun stuff again. Like I just said to Anthony, uh, to, to kind of have that window into that uh, that golden age is, uh, you know, as as a, as a fan, as uh, you know, someone who's who's quote unquote in the media, uh, just uh, to 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 hear his stories and and his perspective on things, both the current product and and what uh, was going on years ago. Just uh, it was tremendous stuff. No, absolutely. You know, he he was great to, to to give so much of his time and to give you know so much information and, and so many stories. I, I'm sure I'm sure you could fill probably days with just stories that man has. It was just great. 
you know, if if you ever do have the good fortune of having him on again, I, I'm kind of curious. Uh, you know, it was great listening to him talk about, you know, the the position of the manager and how it's changed and how the dynamics have changed throughout the years. I'm curious as to his take, you know, at at this present time or, you know, knock on wood, maybe if you get him on a, another show down the line, of who he thinks – uh, you know, would really benefit from the services of a manager in this day and age. You know, because uh, we've talked about it before. I think, I think in this day and age, uh, um, the manager role is severely underutilized, and I think it could be used to bring the product up a few notches. But I'd be curious to see to hear his his take on who exactly he thinks he could. You know, who could he take and bring to that next level? Yeah, I mean, I, I found it intriguing, the stuff he talked about, like with the, the manager stuff and how, you know, he really, you know, delved into everybody's, you know, different styles and different strengths and, uh, you know, uh, conventional wisdom. We've talked about it on the show and a lot of it's, you know, a guy can't talk, give him a manager. Um, JJ was, was with a group of the Four Horsemen, the guys who were pretty good talkers, and, uh, you know, he kind of had an understated style. Um, you know, the one thing I'm curious about, and, and he touched upon that when he was talking about Dusty and Piper, um, you know, I think Heyman has got some leeway, uh, but when we talk about the scripted promos and we talk about today's product, I do wonder as far as the role of the manager, when someone's coming out there to be the advocate, to be the mouthpiece of someone, um, if you kind of handcuff them and saddle them and don't allow them to become uh, the managerial character that, that, that they can be, uh, the role of the manager uh, might not work in today's climate. I To me... Uh, listening to him speak, to be a manager, you know, you kind of had to, I mean, the greats were all, all had different styles. You know, J.J. was, was different than Malthus at Jimmy Hart, who was different from Bobby the Brain Heenan, uh, who was different from Jim Cornette. You know, when you, when you go down the line and, you know, in, in the current day, I feel like they would just say, you know, we need you to be this manager and we need you to be this type and say these words. And, and that might might not work, and that might, you know, it might be a thing where you bring back the managerial role and it kind of falls flat on its face only because uh, the current climate and how they do things with promos. I'm curious your thoughts on that, Dave. On just what, the the managers being underutilized? The managers being underutilized, and what would it work in today's uh, climate? Oh, Paul Heyman's living proof of that, in my opinion, that it is working. But I don't think there's enough depth on the talent chart when it comes to managers in, in, in this day. Back in, 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 the, in the heyday, in the golden age, like J.J. had mentioned, you had so many different successful managers, but that did everything so differently. You mentioned Jim Cornette. He mentioned Gary Hart, who was very underrated. The stuff that Gary Hart did and even Skandor Akbar in world-class championship wrestling, the kind of heat that those guys drew, especially in the regional territory days, Gary Hart, was also a big manager in uh, in Florida Championship Wrestling for Eddie Graham, another individual that J.J. mentioned in the interview. But, you know, back then you had so much talent because you had so many guys that came through that territory system. Paul Heyman right now is living proof that a manager works. But everybody else behind him, that's a different story. Paul Heyman right now is the exception, okay? He stands in a class by himself when it comes to managers in today's landscape of professional wrestling. And I think that it's hard to find very gifted and talented people like him 
to fill the role of being a good mouthpiece for a talent quite necess- might not necessarily be a very good talker. So to, uh, I, Paul Heyman is really the only one true manager currently in WWE that really does it right and does it the way it's supposed to be and the way it was perceived to us as fans years ago in the golden age of managers, if you will. Yeah, I, from from what I heard, I think it, he just gave his tacit endorsement. You know, just get the cuffs off these guys, let them run with it, and see where they can go. Sure, you can you probably have a few misses, but you'll probably have a few hits, and those are, those hits will probably be bullseyes, in my opinion. And I agree with you. And and Rocky, thanks for the call. I'm gonna try and squeeze in some other callers. Uh, good stuff, you know. And I think with you know with you know, Rocky's saying and what J.J. said, you know, the, the intriguing thing when you really start to think about it is in today's climate of, of over-scripting and TV writing and, and writers and, and all of that stuff, uh, you know, when, when you listen to J.J. talk about, you know, his life and his experiences in the business, there's a really good possibility, Dave, that in this climate, the Four Horsemen never happen. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's – I mean – yeah, because because everything is so micromanaged in the business today. That yeah, I mean he's he's, I mean you never really think about that in that instance. You know, you always think about the 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 great times, especially the stuff that the horseman contributed to the product. You know, you know twenty five thirty years ago, but you never really look at it and are like, wow, you know, like they wouldn't really come to fruition if they were a part of today's product because everything is so like i said micromanaged and too organized and too scripted you know no, nothing's ever really off the cuff anymore unless you're dealing with certain talent like a paul Heyman or like a chris jericho so that's a great point that he that that he made and you know i i you know there's one question i did want to ask him that just dawned on me i it was on the tip of my tongue but i, I wanted to ask him about what talents in today's day and age would have been successful during his golden age of wrestling. And I wish I got to ask him that. Maybe I'll ask him. Maybe I'll go on his website and email him. Ask him on jjdillon.com. Go to Kennedy Show right now. Log on to jjdillon.com. You can find all kinds of pictures and historical facts about his legendary manager. Yeah, go there and tell him you enjoyed the interview tonight. Um, Yeah, you know, it's – it's just it, that that's a good question because I, I did find it interesting with with JJ that he wants no part of the idea of reforming uh, who would be in the Horsemen today. Uh, you know, he kind of almost like brought it. Don't ask. You know, it's kind of and he was you know very super nice. But if there was ever a point in the interview that I would say uh, he was a little bit pointed, uh, it was that he wanted no part of. Uh, you know, that idea of if you reform the, the four horsemen today. But it would be intriguing, you know, which guys today uh, could have succeeded. Easy for me to say. Would have succeeded in yesteryear. Um, and, and that remains to be seen. And, and it's a tough call because, like you said, Dave, everything's so micromanaged. The the, uh, the uh, promos are scripted. So it, it's it's a really good question. Uh, who would have made it uh Back in yesteryear, I, I, it's tough for me to even look at anybody and say definitively, you know, this guy definitely would have made it. Um, and it would be interesting to see uh, his thoughts. But 
Uh, with, uh, you know, just about four minutes left in the show, um, you know, tremendous night. Uh, again, you know, JJ said it. We'll say it again. Coming out of Night of Champions, best wishes to Sting. Um, you know, we didn't really get much uh, a chance much to preview Raw tonight. Hope you guys all enjoy Raw. Hope we get a kick-ass Raw. But uh, Dave, I'll tell you something, man. I mean, kick-ass Raw, uh, whether it's a kick-ass Raw tonight or whether it's a uh, cluster F, uh, I'm going to go to bed tonight a pretty happy wrestling fan. Oh, yeah, so am I. I mean, <clears throat> I can't say it enough. Like, this is the this is what the, the, the coolest part of doing this with you every week. It really is. And and if we could do interviews like this every week, I mean, Christ. I, I, I can't even explain what could possibly happen following that. But, you know, you mentioned Raw. I don't necessarily think Raw is going to be a kick-ass show, but there's two things I wanted to point out that we can touch upon next week. First of all, it's been announced that Sting is going to open Raw tonight and kick off the show with a major announcement. Now, based on what we've heard about the injuries, some people are speculating it could possibly be retirement. Who knows? But Sting's going to kick off Raw tonight with a major announcement. And second, we I touched upon it earlier, Chris Jericho was the mystery partner last night in the six-man tag, and Jericho and Reigns and Ambrose were on the losing end. We saw some uh, some tension between the you know the, the three at the end of the match. Jericho kind of walked out, uh, very disgruntled and upset. I'm reading reports that Jericho is now back full-time with WWE, and he'll be on the road with them and up until WrestleMania. It looks like WrestleMania will be the last date. As of right now, that could change, obviously, Jericho has done that before. We're mid-contract. He'd extend the deal. But as of right now, it looks like Jericho will be a part of WrestleMania. Um, and it looks like that they're going to turn Chris Jericho heel and switch things up a bit with him. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to, to, to seeing Jericho. He's a, he's a good talent, fresh face, and, you know, seeing what he's going to do with some of the, the, the younger talent. Guys, again, uh, special thanks again to J.J. Dillon for uh, spending the amount of time he did with us tonight. Uh, great stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, to our fans uh, who continue to support the show, uh, who you know have just been great over the years, uh, hope you enjoyed the interview. Our apologies for not getting a bunch of you guys out on hold. Uh, hope you had fun tonight. Um, we'll get to you next time. Uh, again, apologies, but... Who knew? So I hope you enjoyed the show. And, and again, continued. Thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for your support. Uh, last night, we had a, a guest on the show, uh, Michael Riker from RantSports.com. He is their wrestling uh, blogger over there at RantSports.com. Uh, he had a, a, a big hand in, in helping us snag this guest tonight and I uh, just wanted to thank him publicly on air, and you guys out there, the guy's got a brain for the business, he knows the business, he's uh, in the vein, if you like this show and you like what Dave brings to the table, uh, Michael Riker is also that wrestling uh, historian type, remembers a uh, tremendous amount of wrestling, go to rantsports.com, go to their, their wrestling page, check out Mike Riker's blogs, uh, great blogs on uh what's going on in the business today, and he only blogs on wrestling. So check him out um, over there on the rantsports.com. Uh, with like 30 seconds left, I mean, what can I say? Tonight was just uh, it was a special show. It was, it was a fun night. We got to uh, 
delve into a, a slice of history and uh, to to piggyback what Dave said. Uh, it's it's nights like this that uh, this is why we do this, man. This is why we uh, we're here doing this, and uh, it was great for us tonight. And I hope it was great for you guys. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and uh, we're going to be doing our best to continue to bring you the best in pro wrestling talk and hopefully some more high-profile guests. So enjoy Raw tonight. For Dave, I am Ken. Good night, everybody. Thank you.